up, citizens youth? How we doing? Hello. Let's try it again. How we doing tonight? Let's go. Best night of the week, Wednesday night. Super excited to be with you guys uh, tonight. If it's your first time here, you're like, dude, this is my first time. There was cereal and a bunch of goofy people. Yes, welcome to Citizens Youth. Uh, we're a community of students learning to live for Jesus. Uh, we love singing to Jesus. We love talking about Jesus in a community. We love growing closer to Jesus in community. And we love listening to the words of Jesus and inspired uh, by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit of God through uh, His Word. And we're super excited to dive into Acts chapter 7. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, open up there if you haven't. Um, if, you don't have a, if you do have a Bible, please open up there. If you don't, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, if you've been with us for a few weeks, we have been in the book of Acts, and it has been a powerful journey watching the Spirit-empowered people of God live on mission despite whatever it is the enemy would try uh, to throw at them. Whatever it is, whether it's corruption from the inside, oppression from the outside, persecution, and tonight we're going to see a murder happen for the sake of the gospel. Nothing is going to stop the church. Open up to Acts chapter 7, and we are covering a, a lot of verses tonight, an incredible amount of verses, over 60, 61 to be precise, 61 verses. It is an amazing speech by Stephen, uh, who we uh, introduced last week as someone who was chosen um, by the uh, apostles to serve, to continue, and to multiply the ministry of the tables, aka multiply the ministry of, um, of, of, of charity. And so just because all of the elders and all of the uh, authorities at the time couldn't handle all of the widows that were coming to the church for their daily uh, food, the, the, the disciples chose many people to go and serve uh, these people. And so we see Stephen's one of them. And Stephen is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's doing the missions uh, work of, uh, of, the ch of the tables. He's doing charity work. And he, at the same time, we learned last week that he is doing uh, speaking wonders. He is speaking incredible things uh, to everyone who is listening to him. And we're going to see him, uh, we saw him accused last week, and this week we're going to see his response. And before we begin, I was thinking about a situation like this today. I don't know if anyone has ever been in this particular spot, but a few times in high school, I don't know, track with me here, this is a bit of a story. I don't know if you've ever woken up on like a Thursday, Friday, gone to school, and everything seems to be like too normal, you know what I mean? You're like, school seems fine, my friends, they're cool. Sports, great. You just seem to have everything like locked in. And like first or second period goes by and you're like, man, it's just such a chill day. Everything seems to be going uh, completely fine. And let's say like around third or fourth period, you hear someone say like, yeah, you know that test for history. And you're like, I don't know what these guys are talking about. There's not a test today, right? And all of a sudden you get to history class in sixth period and everyone's putting their notes away. There's nothing on the board, and you're like, oh my goodness, I forgot about a test. All right, you can reveal yourselves. Has this ever happened to you? You've walked into school. Homeschoolers like, my mom reminds me when I have tests. Whatever. For the people who don't go to school in their pajamas, or maybe you do. I don't know. Apparently, you could do that. Has this ever happened to anyone? You're like, oh my goodness, there's a test today. So what the normal person would do is just accept defeat. They're like, you know what? Everything feels so normal. I forgot about the test. I'm just going to fail. But not me. So this has happened maybe like two or three times, I have to admit. I'm pretty, I, I was pretty studious back in high school, and so it wouldn't happen a lot. But when it did, I was like, how many seconds do I have? 45? Perfect. I just rip out my notes, and I just be like, 
and then like like manifesting that I'm going to have picture perfect memory in about like two seconds. Like, God, I know you can work miracles. Allow me to memorize all this in two seconds, right? Okay, this is what I would do in that situation. And then all of a sudden, your, your memory gets all mixed up. You're like, I just read or attempted to read all these notes I've taken for the past two weeks in like two seconds. And now I'm super confused. Wait, which, you know, what, what, was it the Connecticut compromise or was it the New Jersey? We're like, who set up the, the system of the Senate and the, oh, no, wait, you know what I mean? You know, and then you get all your facts mixed up all of a sudden, you just like completely fail. Is this just me? This has happened to me a few times. The point of that story is, tonight we're reading a passage that goes throughout an incredible length of time in history. Stephen is giving a response to the people and the rulers and the authorities, the chief elders and the chief of the priests, uh, ask Stephen, what is it? What do you say to these things? The accusations brought against him. And Stephen does this very interesting thing, and he completely recaps the entire history of the Jewish faith up until that exact moment in 54, 55 verses. And what the temptation could be for you and me right now And the temptation often can be when we read the Bible, we get to a big chunk of scripture, a big passage, and we're like, man, I do not know what this is saying. And we just like to skim right through it and think, okay, cool, maybe the important stuff is just going to stick in my brain, right? We can look at passages like this and think, oh my goodness, man, we're going through a lot of history here. You know, I'll just like skip to the good parts about like Philippians and Colossians and stuff like that, right? Tonight we're going to see Stephen give a passionate, complex, beautiful speech before the people who have accused him, that is going to summarize the entire story of God. And the reality is, you and I have a part in this story. Stephen's speech is complex, lengthy, beautiful, powerful. It is one of the longest speeches recorded in Scripture. And at first glance, it can seem a little pedantic, a little complex, like a history lesson that you're just trying to cram in before a test. But this isn't some mindless lesson where you just have to memorize a bunch of facts just to get the right answers to move on. This is a story about God's people. This is a story about God's character. This is a story about God's plan and about God's purpose. This is a story about God's redemptive and redeeming work, and it is a true story. It is a true story that throughout thousands of years has been told to the past, has been told throughout generations and generations of Christians and people who have known Jesus, and it is a story that every single one of us are a part of. It is a story in response to the accusations brought before Stephen. Verse 1 of chapter 7, And the high priest said, Are these things so? A little bit of context, right? Specifically, the two things, the two accusations. We see this man speaking against the law of Moses and this holy place. That's the temple. There's still the epicenter of Jewish faith, and the epicenter of the new church is still in the temple. And the accusations, the fake accusations, the ones that have been uh, coerced behind the scenes, those are the two things that they're saying. They're, they're saying, uh, gazing at him, saying that he is speaking against uh, the law of Moses and this holy, uh, holy place. And the chief priest said to him, are these things so? And the response from Stephen is amazing. God, be with us as we uh, lean into your word and understand that your story uh, works throughout history, throughout time, uh, throughout every single age. Uh, from the beginning of time, God, you have been with us and you've been desiring to dwell with us. Let us see that tonight through your word. We love you, Lord. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 
Stephen said this, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go from your land, from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed from him, uh, him from there into this land which you are now living. And he gave him into, uh, and yet he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for hundred years. Years, but I will judge the nation that they serve, says God, and they shall, uh, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and the and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So it seems like a bit of a confusing history lesson here. That's not the case. We see in this speech actually a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ throughout three patriarchs, three key players of the Jewish faith and of the Old Testament heroes. We have three things. Uh, We see Abraham here in verses 2 through 8. The person of Jesus was foreshadowed by, one, Abraham, the father of a great family. Stephen hits like a major like rewind on the whole thing. Imagine this, religious leaders, authorities uh, at the time, Uh, confronting this young guy speaking against this holy place, this temple that took over 40 years to build, and this Jesus character said he would tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And they're kind of using their authority probably to intimidate uh, Stephen, but of course the Holy Spirit empowers Stephen to give a completely uh, amazing response that would absolutely level the playing field. Look at this. He, he isn't disrespectful by any means. Look, look at what he says. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. He's appealing to their authority. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Our father, Abraham. There's a common, her- common heritage here. There's a common uh, set of beliefs here. And he is appealing to these things. But he is appealing to something far greater than a tent or a temple. He hits rewind and goes back to the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham starts in Genesis chapter 12, when God establishes a covenant between uh, God and Abram at the time. And he calls him out uh, from the land that he was in. And he says, come, I will give you a, a, a promised land. I will make you the father of a great nation. He promises that like the stars in the sky, so your descendants shall be. God establishes a covenant here in Genesis chapter 12. And this is the story and, and, and the history of these people who were standing here on both sides of the Jesus thing, those who are completely in and know and love Christ and those who are completely trying to persecute, right? For the Jewish faith, uh, this would have been common knowledge. This would have been something that they would have understood. This would have been something that they would have been listening to, but their uh, reaction to this history would have been completely different. I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, Stephen hits, you know, rewind. It goes all the way back to the beginning to show that God, from the very beginning wants to dwell and to be with his people. Genesis chapter 12 shows us that. He promises, God promises to Abram at at that time that I will bless those who bless you and I will fight against those who fight against you. 
Those who persecute you, uh, I will protect you from those people. Those who bless you, I will bless them. From the very beginning, God's heart has been for the world and for being with his people, even though sin had separated us. Genesis 1, a couple chapters before that, we see God created the world. Genesis chapter 3, we see that because of our sinfulness, there's now a gap between us. But even before Christ, God was being with his people. God was desiring to be with his people, and God was desiring to make himself known through the nation and the people of Israel. And that doesn't go quite according uh, to plan. It goes according to God's perfect plan, but the people of Israel don't listen to God. They rebel against God. Uh, they, they find ways to skirt around God's perfect law. They find all these things, and they still find themselves completely separated and short from God and his perfect holy standards. We see Abraham, a father of a great nation. This isn't a boring history lesson. This is an appeal to an authority saying and reminding them that the father, uh, their great you know, father Abraham encountered God and God kept his promise to the Jewish people and to the nation of Israel. God keeps his promises. When God says something, it's going to happen. When God makes a promise with us, when he promises to never leave us or forsake us, when he promises us that there is no temptation that can overcome us that is common to man, when God makes us promises, he keeps them every single time, even when we don't keep them back, even when we fall short, God always keeps his promise. And Stephen reminds them of this person and says, remember Abraham, remember what God did, remember the promise there. Then he continues on the story. So that's verses two through eight. We see uh, Abraham, and then verse nine uh, through, or verses nine through nineteen says this. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, or the sons, the sons uh, of Jacob, who were jealous of Joseph, uh, they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Look at that. God was with him. Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 10, and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him a ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Again, our fathers, he is speaking to people. He is, he is not putting them in a box saying, you are so wrong, you're the worst. Like, uh, his attitude does shift towards the end, we'll see. But the very beginning here, he is appealing uh, to their brotherhood and even their authority. Verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers uh, onto their visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought uh, for the sum of silver uh, from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they will be not kept alive. Another person, another character is here, Joseph. Joseph, a suffering servant, wrongfully accused. A suffering servant, wrongfully accused. Joseph uh, is, this, is the uh, son of Jacob. He was one of many sons of Jacob. 
and he uh, lived a life, if you want to read about it, it's in Genesis chapter, I think, 31 or 32, all the way to Genesis chapter 50. It's an incredible story about this man who has favor in God's eyes. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams, and God gives him a vision that he will be a great ruler. His brothers are jealous of it, so they uh, throw him in a pit and pretend that he died, which is not a great thing to do if you're an older brother and your little brother's kind of annoying. If they're a little annoying, you know, maybe you just like rough them up a little bit and say, knock it off. You don't like throw them in a pit and pretend that they're dead. Not a great move. But anyway, even in that moment, even in the pit of despair, Joseph, God is with Joseph. And God continues to bring him out of the pit. He finds favor uh, in the eyes of Pharaoh, wrongfully accused again, goes back into prison, and then rises out. And he is this incredible tool. God uses people in his story of redemptive work. God used this man to be a redemptive piece of the people of God. He used this person, even through the pain, even through the suffering, even through the difficulty, even through the bitterness of being betrayed and being nearly killed, he is used as a mechanism to continue to save and redeem and rescue the people of God. And Stephen's going through this story. Starts with Abraham, the father of a great nation, and goes to this suffering servant who is used to save and redeem and to rescue the people of God. Now, this is going to be the longest passage. Are you going to are you going to stay with me through it? You guys got your Bibles? You guys ready to go? So we see the story of, of the people of God so far. They, uh, they're promised to be a great nation. And we even see God fulfilling this, project, uh, this promise in Egypt. Uh, it says this in verse 19. Uh, even though they're, they're dealing shrewdly with uh, the, pe- the Jewish people, or what Stephen says, our race, and force their fathers to expose their infants, meaning killing the infants so they would not be kept alive... Then this is what happens, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up uh, for three months in his father's house. And when he was uh, exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation uh, by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Ironic, because he would become a ruler over them. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this uh, retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And, he drew clo- and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, take off your, uh, the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. I, will come, I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, and by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside into their hearts and turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they shall make a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols who were, who, and who were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the hosts of heavens as is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses had directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers turned, brought brought it in with Joshua when they dispo, dispo, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and who asked to find a dwelling place from the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet says. And we're gonna see that in a second. This is the third character, the third key pillar of the Jewish faith, of the people of God. Moses, a deliverer, one who leads his people from suffering. The story of Moses is covered here in these verses. The story of the people of God, where do they go? They start, there's a promise made from Abraham. The promise is kept, continuing on through Joseph. The people of God are stuck in slavery in Egypt. And what does God say to Moses? What does God say to Moses? I have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. There's a common thread here that we're going to see and reveal here in a second. But throughout the entire arc of history, God has desired to dwell with his people and to rescue his people and to redeem his people. And Stephen is using these three guys as an example. Abraham, the father of a great people, Joseph, a suffering servant used by God, and Moses, a leader who delivers his people from bondage. All three of these people are foreshadowing Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet, Moses says, there will be a prophet. There will be someone uh, from the brotherhood, from us. There will be a perfect deliverer and redeemer and judge delivered from the people of God. Stephen is using this history that both everyone around them, the Jewish people would have known. They would have understood. It would have been so important to them 
And he's highlighting these three people for a very specific reason, to show that the person that they just killed was the complete fulfillment of all of the pain and all of the suffering and the complete fulfillment of the delivery from that pain and suffering. Moses, Joseph, Abraham, none of them were perfect. Abraham lies. Abraham uh, deceives when he is in, stuck in a difficult situation. Joseph, we don't have a ton of uh, his sins recorded in the book of Genesis, but he was not the perfect leader or the perfect person. Moses was a murderer. He murders a guy. Uh, he, he flees from the presence of God. He flees highs and isolations. None of these people are perfect, but from the people of Israel, there would be someone who is perfect, who would be a perfect father to a people, who would be that suffering servant used by God, who would be that perfect leader who delivers his people from bondage. Do you know who that person is? That person is Jesus. That person is Jesus. And Stephen is using this. When the two accusations are brought against him, the law of Moses and this holy place, the temple, he is going throughout the entire history of the temple, the people of God, all of these things to show that God desires to be and to dwell with his people and to say that the one who is delivering us from sin and bondage, that's the person that you just killed, Jesus Christ. The one main idea for us tonight through this long, complex, beautiful passage is that all scripture points to the supremacy of Jesus. All scripture points to the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus came, and with these same accusations, right, similar accusations are being thrown at Jesus. There's a lot of parallels between Stephen and Jesus Christ. One of them is blasphemy, saying blasphemous things. Another is, is how could you possibly claim that you're going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days? Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them. Jesus perfectly fulfills all all of the prophecies of the Old Testament and all of the law because we couldn't. We couldn't keep the law. So Jesus came to fulfill it. We uh, couldn't be the perfect savior of our own lives or anything. So Jesus came to fulfill it. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the stories of God, when you read the stories of the Israelites, you're not reading like kind of like the prequel. You're not reading like something that's like kind of like a separate thing. And then Jesus comes and he's this really cool guy. And then it's like all about how to live for Jesus. And I like this half or this like 30% of the Bible, but like that other percent, I don't know about that. It is all one cohesive story of God and the story of God's redemption and the story of God's rescue and the story of how God wants to dwell with his people. But the question is, are you going to and are you ready to accept that that savior, that father, that redeemer, that rescuer, that perfect keeper of the law is Jesus or not? That's the question that these men had to answer. They wouldn't accept that it was Jesus. And it's the question that you have to ask yourselves and answer right now, 2,000 years later. When we look at the story of the people of God, when we look at the story in the history of humanity, we have to ask ourselves, are we able to save ourselves? Are we able to deliver us out of bondage? Are we able to deliver us and separate us from uh, not just, you know, we're, we're not stuck in slavery, thank God, but we are slaves to sin. We are not stuck in a pit, a literal pit, but we are stuck in, in the pit and the consequences of sin, whatever it may be. We have to ask ourselves, do we recognize that there is only one 
who can rescue. There's only one who can save. There's only one who can bring us from the things that we need to be saved from, sin. Do you know him? Has he revealed himself to you? Are you humble enough to listen to him? Because all of scripture points to the supremacy of Christ. The Bible points to Jesus. The Old Testament is just as inspired as the New Testament. Jesus said he was here to fulfill these things. Our deepest longings, our deepest desires of our hearts, the answer to the question, what is my purpose, is all found in one person, and that is Jesus. And these people needed to be humble enough to hear that and recognize it, repent and turn to Jesus, but they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't see that. Look at this in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did, you not, did not my hand make all these things? So after this grand history of the Old Testament and the grand history of the people of God, God's redemptive, redeeming work of all of humankind. Now he is getting kind of back closer to the point. When they say, is this man speaking against this holy place, the temple? How dare you say something against this? And he says, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Now he's getting more specific. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you will always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. It's a bit of a tone shift there. The accusations, the law and the holy place, the temple. Stephen says, God does not dwell simply in this space. God doesn't dwell in this brick building, this this building that we've made. God dwells. It says his heavens. What does it say specifically here? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Stephen is saying God and his Holy Spirit have authority over every single space, every place ever. And God is not confined to this space that you deemed so worthy. He is not completely knocking and saying it is a completely unnecessary thing or it shouldn't have been built. God commanded for those things to happen, but he is saying God is bigger and higher than the law. He is bigger and more holy than this small space that we call the temple. Jesus fulfilled these things. God is not confined to a space. The religious leader idolized this physical space. Why? Because they were in charge, right? They had uh, worldly and supposed spiritual authority over this space. And so if this guy Stephen is saying the truth that the heavens belong to God and that the earth is a footstool to God, they don't necessarily want to hear that in that moment. Why also are they mad? Because they have prioritized a physical space over the actual space that God cares about, and that is their heart. And that's your heart. That's my heart. The space that God is seeking to dwell and is seeking uh, to, to, to make himself known is, it is the space in our heart. The innermost part of who we are is what the heart is. Your thoughts, your motivations, your, your, your secret hidden uh, uh, thoughts and feelings, all of that emanates from our hearts. 
And so the reason they would have been so upset at hearing this is because they didn't prioritize that space. They didn't care about that space. They didn't understand and they didn't recognize and they didn't want Christ to have the authority that he rightfully deserves over your heart and over my heart and over the hearts of every single person who lived. God is not confined to a space. They wanted to look the part, but not play the part. And Stephen's narrative, though true, is dismissing their worldly and fake spiritual authority, and they are not going to be happy about it. This is a beautiful thing. I hope this encourages you. Reading this, um, getting caught up in, in the entire history of it, you can, you can begin to get a little lost in the narrative and a little bit of the story. But to sum it all up, to try and do it in the short amount of time that we have here tonight, all this to say that God desires to meet with you. He has revealed himself through history. He meets with people where? And so like they, were, they got so caught up, the temple, the temple, this space, this holy place. And how many, pe- how many places did God meet with his people in, in the story that he just said, he meets with them in the desert. He meets with them in Midian. He meets with them in the pit. He meets with them in Egypt. God meets with his people all throughout history. It wasn't even until Solomon that this temple was built, that the space was physically constructed. And so Stephen is saying, look at all the redemptive work that God has done throughout history and how he has met his people throughout the ages. And God is saying to us today that he still desires to meet with you and me. We have the power of the Holy Spirit as Christians. And God, if you don't know him, if you're not a Christian, God desires to have you repent and to have a relationship with him. He's not confined to his physical space. How would that radically change your prayer time, your time in worshiping God, your time in serving God, your time in reading God's word, that through all of human history, he has wanted to bridge this gap and he has made it possible for you and I to know him and understand him. Shouldn't that make your heart just a little bit more thankful? Shouldn't you be prioritizing that space just a little bit more? knowing that God has done all of the work, right? It wasn't us. It's not us working our way to God. God is working and has made a way towards us. And he has turned his face towards us. And these men, these people who are fakely, falsely accusing Stephen could have turned. They could have repented. They could have seen and recognized and known that they were responsible for the murder of Jesus. And you know what? Jesus would have forgiven them as he did so many who had killed him. This is, the, this is the accusation that Stephen brings. You stiff-necked people, this is just like the prophets of the Old Testament. This is like an Old Testament prophecy thing right here. <laughs> How many, uh, you'd resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. The Holy Spirit has always existed. It wasn't this thing that popped up in Acts. They always resisted the Holy Spirit. Which one of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? That is a serious accusation. That is a serious accusation right there. The, your fathers, the religious leaders throughout the history of the Old Testament, you can read it yourself, would not listen to God. Read Jeremiah, read Amos, read all of the major minor prophets. Read all of them. We don't listen. They don't listen. Stephen recognizes this and says, which one of your fathers did not uh, prof- like, uh, kill and destroy the prophets of God? Just as in a prophetic way Stephen is speaking here, what would happen because of this radical accusation? Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven 
and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, and he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed towards him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and they, as they were stoning Stephen. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Translation, he was killed for his faith. Stephen exists as the first martyr in the new spirit and powder church. Because of this faith, because of the truth that is represented here, and because of the challenge that it brings before people who look the part, but they don't want to play the part, he is killed for his faith. The ultimate act of obedience leads to the ultimate punishment of death. Look at this beautiful picture here. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Every single time we see a picture of Jesus in heaven in the Bible, Jesus is not standing. Jesus is sitting down because it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of power. God, he's sitting at the right hand of God, but here he is standing. He is standing. Jesus, the creator, the ruler of the universe, gets out of his seat to welcome in the first martyr. Imagine what that was like. Jesus standing there, welcoming in someone who is being killed for their faith. Why would the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords stand out of his seat? He doesn't need to. But he does. He welcomes in the most obedient servant. The most uh, obedient act leads to the ultimate punishment of death. If you're in the room tonight and you're a skeptic, and I know there's a few of you in here, if you're questioning this thing, you've got questions, you've got concerns about this whole Christian thing, I ask you this question. How delusional do you have to be to die for something that isn't true? How much do you want to mislead people that you would be ready to die and in the process of dying? Stoning, by the way, is this thing that happens where uh, a crowd of people gathers around someone. They toss them into a pit. Um, initially, like typically throwing people in the pit, you hope and, and pray that the person uh, breaks arms, legs, neck, whatever it is, uh, so they can't try and crawl out or whatever. You start with smaller stones. You begin to throw them. Um, and then after that person is knocked unconscious or is unable to move, then you get the bigger stones, the more jagged ones, and then you just pile this person with stones, uh, dying through crushed lungs, blunt force trauma, whatever it may be. How delusional do you have to be to be completely aware that this is all a farce? This is all a joke. This Jesus guy died. He didn't come back from the dead like we thought or like whatever, but we're really trying to keep this thing going. We've convinced this guy, Stephen, to serve for us and he's dying for his faith and he doesn't give up. He doesn't give in. He stands the test of, of faithfulness because I don't know if you've ever like tried to keep a secret that isn't true. I don't know if you've ever tried to keep something hidden that like you don't want to come out, but all the time those things do eventually come out. They're proven wrong and they're proven and we're proven that we're sinful. But like if you are like trying 
to keep this lie under wraps and someone is about to kill you, you are going to give it up and say, you know what, this is all a joke. I'm sorry, I don't want to die. Uh, yeah, no, I, this is too much for me. I'm sorry, look, I, I didn't mean to offend you. I, I'm, I'm just going to go back and, and this is all a lie. doesn't happen here. For the skeptic in the room, why would this person be the first of thousands of people who die for faith and the faith of Jesus? How wrong do they have to be? Was he trying to deceive people? And to the Christian in the room, to the one who knows Christ, the one who loves Christ, are you so passionate and so obedient that you would live your life regardless of the consequences that the world is going to throw at you? Because so often, I think we'd be like, I would die for Jesus, absolutely, 100%. Then people like stop inviting you to parties and make fun of you, and you're like, well, like, I'd want to do all those things. But like, I'd die. Like, if someone put a gun to my head, sure, I'd do that. But like the, the, the like, again, first of all, we're talking about persecution. None of us in this room, maybe a few, um, have experienced this level of like, we, or you could be, or you might get killed for your faith. We experience opposition. We experience pain. We experience all those things for the sake of, go- of the gospel. And we consider that righteousness. We consider it a joy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. But how many of us in this room, in this space, are prepared to face whatever it is and to stand strong in the face of that? Are you prepared for that? In our space and time, in this current life that we live, we don't face persecution like this in our context, but there are thousands of people around the world who do. It doesn't make headlines, but people are being killed for their faith every single day. People I know personally have been tortured for the sake of the gospel who have been threatened and nearly killed and miraculously brought out of it for the sake of the gospel. It happens. It is true. Are you prepared to face whatever it may be for the sake of the gospel? A few things. How does this apply to me, right? Listening to this amazing speech and seeing this thing happen to the Christian, we know and understand that there is an ultimate obedience that we are called to. To the skeptic, we recognize that we have to wrestle and wonder why would people who would have seen Jesus and if it was a lie, died for a lie? Why would they do that? Maybe it's because it wasn't a lie and because it was true. And Christian, again, the persecution would not stop the church. A passionate, spirit-filled speech given about thousands of years of the history of God's story Uh, and the people of God and the supremacy of Jesus would lead to a martyr's death that would ignite the gospel of Jesus and the church for thousands of years to come. This event sparks modern-day missions in, in the history of the church. This event right here. Think about it. The passionate. He's giving an entire speech of God moving, God working, and in a strange and beautiful moment, his death would be the thing that actually drives the Jewish people out of Jerusalem on mission to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This act. Him professing, God working all things out for good, God working throughout history. Even his own death would be something that God uses to then continue to push the church, and the missions of God forward. Even death. What's interesting is because death is the ultimate weapon of of, of evil rulers, right? It's the worst punishment. It's the worst thing imaginable, right? Like if you talk about like levels of like 
you steal something from a store, you get like a minor slap on the wrist and say, hey, maybe a fine, don't do that again. That's like a maybe minor crime or sin all the way to the worst of the worst. What that would be is capital punishment to kill someone, to take someone's life for a punishment. You step out of line, you offend us, whatever it may be, uh, you know, that is the ultimate weapon. What's fascinating here is that God uses the ultimate weapon to show that this is just a tool that God uses to spark new life in the church. Because death, Christ's death, ultimately shows us that God is the ruler over death, that death can't stop God, that death can't stop the church. It wasn't, it's never going to be able to stop it. After we see the gates of persecution uh, you know, are open. The message of the gospel does what Jesus said it would do, and it would continue to go to the ends of the earth. The promise that Jesus made to his disciples is being fulfilled through things like death. And it's confusing sometimes, and it's hard to hear and hard to understand. But death has no sting over the Christian or the church of Christ. The ultimate weapon the world or the enemy would have try to use is the ultimate tool that God uses to propel his mission forward. This is what would drive the Jewish people or the people uh, who were uh, living in Jerusalem at the time out. They would go, they would spread, they would, and we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. They would go and they would live on mission because of an act like this. Jesus is the one he kept his promise. Jesus would be with them like he also promised. Like he promised to Abraham, like he promised to Joseph, like he promised to Moses, and like he promises to us. God will be with us, even in the face of death, even in the face of, of, of sudden persecution or, or whatever it is that the world tries to throw at you. God is with his people. What seems like a win for Satan would be a huge victory for God and the kingdom. Anytime the world or Satan attacks or persecutes the gospel, the power of the gospel only grows stronger because in God's kingdom, death is what? Not the end. It's not the end of our story. When we die, we see a beautiful picture of the end of Stephen's life as he has entered into the kingdom of God to experience eternal life forever. That is where his true life starts, right? That's where our life will begin. When these worldly bodies die, we get to see Jesus face to face. And the story of Stephen, we're talking about 2,000 years later as it encourages our hearts, as it challenges us. God uses death, the thing that the enemy would hoard over us and say, see, I could even kill you. I could take away everything from you. But God in his sovereignty will use even death, even the worst thing imaginable to propel his purposes and to welcome those who may die for the faith into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful story. The ultimate weapon that we get to fear is turned into a magnificent triumph in God's kingdom. We don't fear death if we know Christ. We don't fear, we don't get concerned. We know uh, that the end of all things, we get to see Christ face to face. We get to see him, we get to know him, we get to live for him as we're here on this earth. All throughout history, God wants to be with his people. If you're in the room right now and you're frustrated about life and you're just like, life is hard and I just don't know if God cares about you. God does care about you. 
He loves you. He knows you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to turn. Would tonight be the night that maybe for the first time, you'd recognize that for years your heart has been hardened. Right? Like the people that Stephen was talking to, the people who have all the right answers, who could ace the test, who could have told Stephen all of the things that he already said, the person who knows the right things to say, but they don't want to have Christ have the ultimate rule and authority over their hearts. Maybe that's you tonight, and you're recognizing and knowing, you know what, when I die, I know I want to be with Christ. I know I need to see him face to face. I know I need to turn from my sin. If you're a Christian in the room and you've known him for years, are you prepared to be a radical, obedient servant for God, even in the face of death or persecution or pain or whatever it is? Most likely, a very small fraction of the pain that the early church went through, but are you still ready to be obedient? Are you ready to be obedient to whatever it is God is calling you to do? And no that his promise is true from Genesis 12 to now, that God is with us. He is near us and he has made a way for us to be with him. Do you believe that? Let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you uh, for tonight. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for these beautiful 60 verses of, uh, of the story of your kingdom, God. God, when things are hard, when things are difficult, Allow us to recognize and remember that you are still working all things for good. You use something even as horrific as a brutal public execution to spark missions, to spark uh, a conviction for the gospel. God, I pray that you would continue to show us that the tough things that we're working through, one, oftentimes, we can trust and know that uh, these things are minor in comparison to many of the things that Christians around the world face. And we could be thankful for that. But God, even those things that burden us, even those things that weigh us down, you are working all things together. God, you've worked throughout history. Your word speaks to it. Your actions show it that you are supreme over everything, Lord. We praise you for that. Allow us to sing that with conviction. Allow us to speak that over our friends, over our families, over our classmates, whoever it is. Let us speak this truth. Let's not back down in the face of, of, of oppression or evil or whatever it may be, God. And know and stand firm in thankfulness that you have our back. You are standing before us and behind us. You're giving us the words to say. You're giving us the strength to fight and to stand, God. And even when we can't, and even when we're knocked down, even when we are brutalized for the sake of the gospel, God, I pray that that testimony would spring forth to everyone who knows and everyone who sees. God, let our pain be a testimony to the lost and the dying. God, for the lost in the room, I pray that you would continue to wrestle with their hearts, continue to call out to them and, and wrestle with their hearts and to hold fast to them. God, I pray that they would consider the goodness of you. I pray that they would consider what it is that you have done and the way that you have made for them uh, to live. God, we love you. We're thankful for this night. Help us to sing with joy and conviction and passion right here and right now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.